This is Macro Horizons, episode 64, Fauci, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 13th. And as a reminder, an estimate with a two standard deviation error band is really just a guess. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. It's been an exciting week in the Treasury market. There's very little question of that. We have seen the Fed roll out a variety of new programs. We've seen the yield curve re-steepen. Twos, tens, now solidly above 50 basis points. All of this with a backdrop of an equity market that appears to have put in the lows for the cycle and is repricing away from a great deal of the more dramatic downside scenarios. Now, whether or not this trend persists will be a function, obviously, of how the coronavirus continues to develop. There has been some encouraging information coming out on the COVID-19 front. However, we're still somewhat hesitant to assume that the worst is entirely behind us. If, in fact, the early signs that the apex has already occurred or is in the process of occurring end up being correct, then the next leg of this trade will be to focus on timing the partial reopenings of certain parts of the economy. Our baseline assumption remains that sometime in May, we will start to see companies reopen. We will start to see social distancing having had the bulk of the positive impact that the experts expected to. And the trade-off will be made between keeping the economy closed for another several weeks and reopening it and advocating an ongoing level of safety. Now, exactly what that looks like are restaurants allowed to reopen but only at half capacity? Are workout facilities allowed to do the same? All of that remains to be seen. But for now, what appears to be playing out in the mind of investors is that the worst of it might be behind us for the time being. And with the S&P 500 at 2,800, that might ultimately be a reasonable buying opportunity. Not as good as 2,200, But given the risks facing the real economy and all the uncertainty that was priced in during the middle of March, investor caution certainly seems warranted. One other defining characteristic of the market this week was the reinforcement of the market's willingness to ignore dismal employment data. We saw a very high initial jobless claims print and Treasury's sold off modestly, and the equity market ended up at or near the local highs. 
Now, we're interpreting this not as a complete disregard for the economic data, but rather as investors simply having priced in enough of the downside that unless the data deteriorates a material degree from here, we're simply going to be in a process of absorbing the sticker shock and waiting out the second quarter as we wait to see how significant the damage is and then how quick the rebound will become. That's not to suggest that that's a new or different trading dynamic. In fact, that has been the case throughout much of the last couple weeks. What is different is the extension of the risk-on sentiment. And to a large extent, we're crediting the Fed, Jerome Powell, and the efforts made by Congress and the White House to push forward with some of the fiscal stimulus efforts. So stocks up, bonds down. Corona peaking? That seems to be the big question, Ben, whether the COVID-19 outbreak has reached its peak or whether or not this is simply a respite in the outbreak and there is a great deal more downside ahead. Right now, to look at the performance of risk assets, one would think that the worst might already be behind us. If we look at the treasury market, what I've been most fascinated about is the fact that we're in a very definable range with 10-year yields effectively anchored at 75 basis points. And it's going to take quite a bit to really get one-handle 10-year yields back on the table. The Fed has stepped up yet again, providing another round of new programs. They're buying municipal bonds. They're providing additional support to small businesses. All of this is constructive. It's constructive for the economic outlook. Or more importantly, it takes away some of the massive downside risk that's already priced into financial markets. The new information which has been revealed this week, included another very high initial jobless claims print, but it wasn't a record. And that is another aspect which is contributing to a slightly more positive outlook. One of the biggest debates that's currently in the market is whether it'll be a V-shaped or a U-shaped recovery. We're increasingly of the mind that it will be closer to a W-shaped recovery. And by that, I simply mean that you have the mechanical drop in growth as a function of shutting down the economy, followed by a spike once everything gets back online. And then there'll be this period of reassessment. The labor market is not going to emerge from this process completely unscathed. There'll be some sustainable changes. It will take quite a bit of time to have everyone who's stopped out of the labor market fully reintegrated. That's going to have an impact on consumption. And once we establish a new level of consumption, then businesses will adjust accordingly. And if this last week has taught us anything, it's that the new top tier information is related to the spread of the disease. But I think it's important to note at this point, we may be reaching a period where the new case counts, the new mortality stats are becoming less and less relevant as hopefully the spread of the virus begins to slow. And so from that perspective, what will be the next quote unquote new top tier information? Ben, you make a great point that there's definitely a decline of market sensitivity to the COVID-19 headlines. One that didn't escape us, however, was the official estimate of the potential fatalities in the U.S. 
Well, the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases was estimating somewhere between 100 and 200,000. That has been lowered to closer to 60,000. Now, that's consistent with the notion that we might be further along in this process than anticipated, but nonetheless, the toll will be significant. To your point, what's next? What are we going to be trading if we're not trading the COVID-19 headlines? To some extent, I think that the focus will shift to the incoming European data because how quickly the situation in Europe is rectified will have implications for market participants' expectations for the U.S. economy. But given the fundamental differences between Europe and the U.S. as economies, we're less convinced that that's going to be the biggest driver of the treasury market. Said differently, you might get five to seven basis points out of some good or bad news coming from Germany, but you're not going to get 15 or 20. That's going to come down to any progress on the timing of the lockdown. We've gotten a lot of questions over the course of the last week about how important are each of these incremental new Fed programs? Who are they helping? How much does it matter? The reality is that for the time being, the Fed's biggest risk is that they under-deliver. There's nothing that's going to come out of the Fed that people will say, aha, that's a massive risk on. We weren't expecting that. The tightrope that Powell needs to walk at this point is to ensure that the Fed continues to over-deliver, which frankly has been a theme throughout much of this crisis. And further to the point, we're pricing in a U.S. economy effectively closed in the second quarter. If there's any inclination that there will be partial reopenings earlier or that certain regions will be up and running more quickly than anticipated, that will create the biggest challenge for a lower treasury rate environment, at least in the very near term. And the idea that the Fed is over-delivering I think there is something there. You know, if you look at what the Fed's crisis actions have been over the past few weeks, even, it's been incredibly dramatic, emphasized all the more by Thursday's announcement of $2.3 trillion in new lending. Imagine if all else equal, a couple months ago, you said that the Fed was going to announce $2.3 trillion in new lending. What would happen to tens? You'd imagine they'd move by more than three or four basis points. And to me, what that really speaks to is a couple things. One, the idea that the Fed is going to be there, is going to do what it takes, but two, that they might not be done yet in any form. So what I mean by all this is that they've creatively expanded not only from their traditional treasury holdings, which, you know, theoretically in the long run is where they want to get back to only, but now they're in small and medium business loans. They're in municipalities. They're in corporates. They're not technically in stocks yet, but without a doubt, a lot of the backstop to the equity market has been the Fed interventions. So all of this kind of comes together with the point of, is this too much? By over-delivering, are you creating problems down the road? And reasonably so. It's entirely possible that some zombie firms are going to be able to sustain operations because of the Fed actions. Fair enough. That's a negative. The question is, how do you balance that with the risk of the Great Depression 2.0? The other thought is that some of these facilities run the risk of creating self-reinforcing price action. So the crisis facilities, for example run the risk of creating self-fulfilling price action. 
By this, especially what I mean is around, say, quantitative easing. The Fed's been backing off their QE purchases over the past week or two. But if things really stabilize, you imagine one, rates go up on optimism and two, rates go up on reduced quantitative easing purchases. So you can get a little bit of a one-two punch that could exacerbate price action that you otherwise wouldn't see. John, you make a very interesting point about the scaling back from QE. One of the things that is certainly on the mind of many investors, is that the Fed continues to put what appears to be a limitless amount of money into the system. And as we know, inflation should be the obvious next step. What will be fascinating to see is the transition of the timing between a concern about unemployment skyrocketing and a huge drop in GDP to worries about inflation coming back. And I cannot imagine that we're going to come out of this entire process without someone seriously concerned about a stagflation environment. Imagine a situation in which energy prices are off the lows, the economy reopens, the employment market starts to pick back up. It certainly won't be like it was in 2018, 2019. But once we do start to see some signs of healing, there's going to be a period where inflation does come back, but instead of being the type of inflation that is organically demand-side driven, it could be a supply-side shock, which would function as a tax on consumption and thereby contribute to that W-shaped recovery scenario. So Ian, right now, 10-year break-evens are call it 120 basis points, 130 basis points. How are you thinking about that? Is that mispriced being too low? I don't think it's mispriced. I think it does reflect what the market is anticipating in terms of the risk of outcomes over the course of the next 10 years. Now, that does assign some non-zero probability to the fact that we are about to enter the Great Depression 2.0. I don't think that's the case, however. And as incremental information continues to come in, we will see expectations refined from that and a lower probability that we're going to enter a Great Depression translates through to a higher probability that break-evens are not accurately reflecting the true risks for a post-crisis spike in prices. And a question we've gotten this past week that is relevant in this regard is, okay, so all of this stimulus flows through, the virus abates maybe even more quickly than people were expecting, and we get this recovery, V-shaped, W-shaped, U-shaped, whatever form it ultimately ends up taking. As it pertains to the Fed, discussions I've had pose the question of how quickly are they going to be to remove some of these extraordinary measures? We're obviously still in the phase of these being rolled out, but in the event the economy does begin to snap back and inflation does begin to pick up, is the Fed going to be more willing to walk back some of these measures more quickly in order to avoid sort of a runaway price pressure scenario? In my mind, I think that's extremely unlikely simply by the virtue of market sentiment and that if headlines start to filter through that the municipal buying facility is being taken offline, the corporate paper facility is being taken offline, all the way down the list of new acronyms we have, the risk-off response to that is certainly undesirable. And so the more likely scenario is that rather than clamp these programs down, it won't be until utilization really begins to drop off that that topic will even enter the conversation. Yeah, Ben, I completely agree with your take on that. 
the emergency nature of a lot of these programs and how quickly they were rolled out does speak to the Fed's willingness to respond quickly to a devolving situation. That is entirely different than unwinding such programs. You put them on very quickly, you take them off very slowly, just as a theme. If we took away anything from the Fed's response function to the last financial crisis, it would be just that. Very quick to jump in with stimulative programs and only take them away once utilization dries up. So we're talking about years here. We're not talking about months or quarters. The only scenario in which I could envision the Fed being aggressive in shutting down some of these programs and taking the stimulus out of the system would be a situation where we had an emergency on the flip side, and the flip side emergency would be a hyperinflation environment. And frankly, a hyperinflation environment, given the realities of the global economic structure at this point is highly unlikely, particularly since the U.S. economy continues to benefit from having the dollar as a last reserve currency standing. And Ian, you're absolutely right, even in just a true mechanical sense. If you look at what some of the special purpose vehicles are going to buy, it's out to four or five years. That means that say the Fed even just buys for three months and then stops, they're going to hold assets for four to five years. Still in 2024, 2025, there's going to be part of the Fed's balance sheet that's left over from these crisis measures. And frankly, it's probably going to go past there. So what this makes important is to delineate between the stock and the flow. Once the Fed's bought, those assets are just going to sit in these special purpose vehicles until they mature. The flow is actually going to be a little more interesting. By this, I mean it'll be very important to watch how this is changing because that's really the creation of easier financial conditions from the Fed. On the other hand, them just having bought and sitting on these assets has a much smaller net impact. This observation might predate the two of you in their market experience, but there was a period during the financial crisis, after the Fed started buying treasuries and really expanded their balance sheet to include mortgages, to include agencies, etc., that there was a debate of whether or not the Fed would sell mortgages. Now, what we have seen is the best that the Fed can possibly do is slowly taper out of these programs and not reinvest the proceeds. That was a key component of the Fed's game plan over the course of the last several years. So fast forward to 2021, 2022, somebody's going to be debating whether or not the Fed should sell munis. The Fed's not going to sell munis. To your point, John, I think that you're 100% correct. They're simply going to sit on these assets and let them mature. And it's what they do with the proceeds that will be the more meaningful nuance as these programs come to an eventual end. So we've talked a lot about the Fed this episode. And, you know, when I take a step back and think about all the different facilities they've done, they've announced the commercial paper facility, the FX swap lines, money market, corporate credit, the PPP, Main Street, munis. What's next? What more could they possibly do? Or are we starting to hit the moment where this is the last of the crisis facilities? Well, what more could they possibly do? Or what more will they need to do? That's the bigger question, at least in my mind. You know, they can buy stocks. Well, not really without congressional approval, but they're buying corporate bonds. They're now buying munis. 
the idea that they would go so far down the capital structure to consider what the Bank of Japan has been doing really isn't as crazy as it might have sounded two or three months ago. That said, I don't think that they're going to buy stocks, and I don't think that they will significantly increase QE from the current levels, especially if the virus curve continues to appear, at least, to be flattening. Ian, to your point on equities, one detail that I think is actually pretty valuable in the latest adjustment to the Fed's corporate bond purchasing program, they're actually opening the door to buying some junk-rated debt. Wait, so does that mean that Mike Milken will be the new chair of the Fed? Who's Mike Milken? Ugh. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have some incoming information on the economic side to absorb, most notably the March retail sales figures. Now, Treasuries have, to a large extent, been in the process of ignoring the employment data. What remains to be seen is whether or not they'll be as quick to ignore the consumption data. Given the importance of consumption to the pace of growth in the U.S., and the obvious translation of a spike in unemployment to weaker sales, this will be an important gauge in estimating the extent of the damage that the market will expect in the first and second quarters of 2020. There's no treasury supply on the horizon, and as a result, we won't be looking for any auction concession-inspired price action. Nonetheless, given the performance of 3s, 10s, and 30s last week, we continue to see ample support for the Treasury market, even despite the ballooning issuance stats. The tick data does come out on Wednesday, and that will offer a glimpse as to who has been buying in the Treasury market, but it's just through February. So as one of the classic laments of the tick data persists, it's so dated that it's not tradable, but it's interesting context nonetheless. A lot of emphasis has been put on the equity market and its performance over the course of the last couple weeks. Looking at the S&P 500, one of the things that stands out is, as of Friday, stocks have not only entered into a bull market, but have also retraced half of their losses since early March. Now, whether this is simply price discovery or a dead cap bounce remains to be seen. One aspect is abundantly clear, and that is that the Fed has stepped up in meaningful size to provide support in terms of liquidity, as well as support in terms of being a backstop in the corporate and now muni market. The Fed has a very specific set of risks here, and that is they cannot afford to underperform dovish expectations. So it will become increasingly difficult to see more from the Fed per se. They're running out of asset classes to support. However, the size and the commitment to those asset classes could certainly be variable. And if anything, at this stage, it appears that there is upside risk rather than downside risk of what we should be expecting to come out of Powell and company. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the lockdown continues, we're reminded that there's nothing like mandated confinement to strengthen a relationship of any type. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. 
please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.